Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This is your culinary, culture, and lifestyle show that celebrates food and wine, health, tech, travel, and all things delicious. I like to say if you love to cook or love to eat, well, then we can definitely be friends. I'll keep you updated on the food scene. We'll take deep explorations of a broad range of culinary topics. So I hope that you'll tune in every Sunday and set your gastronomic sights higher because you just might learn something. I'm always serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com, and I hope that you'll become a fan and a friend and find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. If you happen to have missed missed a past show, you can find podcasts of this radio program from my website at chefjamie.com and on iTunes, FeedBurner, and Blueberry. I will kick off the show as I always do with a tutorial of sorts. I will say, when life gives you lemons, put them in everything. To me, lemons are the universally useful seasoning. The Meyer lemon, a prized find and much more readily available than ever before, is at the height of its season. And so it makes me think about the beauty of lemons and all of its many uses. Whether you get your hands on some of the sweet tart variety that is the Meyer, or maybe you're growing Eureka lemons, the household variety in your backyard, I thought I'd share some inspiration for the lovely lemon. Adding lemon juice or lemon zest to a dish, either sweet or savory, changes the entire flavor profile. Suddenly, a blackberry pie tastes like it's packed with a thousand perfect berries and roasted broccolini isn't just a side dish anymore. Lemon juice and lemon zest both contribute that glorious savor that you can't quite put your finger on. Lemons, to me are as crucial as salt. But while salt is a mainstay, lemons are often tragically overlooked. I tell the story about having the opportunity to cook in Charlie Palmer's kitchen many, many years ago when I spent time in professional kitchens. He adds a drop of lemon to most of his dishes before they go to your table. And it's that je ne sais quoi, as the French say, it's that bright, flavor of acidity, sometimes subtly in the background, sometimes that stands out, but that brings the dish alive. Lemons have since spread from India and Rome to the Middle East, Africa, China, and the Americas, um, since their inception, in fact. And the lemon remains one of the most widely used ingredient from continent to continent. But I think few great cooks take full advantage of their potential. Now, If you want to speak biochemically, on your tongue, salt and lemon work a similar kind of magic. Salty and sour taste receptors are relatively simple compared with the sweet, bitter umami. Tasting salty and sour depends solely on the detection of ions, sodium for salt, hydrogen for sour, whereas acidity, like the saltiness, 
increases salivation. So that's what makes both salt and lemon very similar in that they're both mouthwatering. That squeeze of lemon is as good and as important as a dash of salt to bring out the flavor of any food. Now, besides making your mouth water, acidity has a few other beautiful benefits. It cuts richness and heaviness. It gives you a fresh, clean taste. Lemon juice, or acid for that matter in general, can also a change of food's texture, like when you make ceviche, right? Or when you tenderize meat using acid. The lemon contains citric acid, which helps break down fat and carbohydrates and protein. And so therefore, you know now why I find it so universal. But lemons aren't just useful for their juice, mind you. The zest actually contains lemon oil, which is where you'll find the most flavor bang for your lemon buck. I happen to love zesting a lemon before I go to juice it so that I can use that lemon zest in a multitude of applications. Lemon zest, because it's considered a dry ingredient as opposed to the liquid that is lemon juice, is very handy when you want to add flavor, but you don't want to add additional liquid, like for instance, in a pie crust. I also find that lemon zest works very similarly to when you finish a dish with fresh herbs. Think of Vietnamese cuisine, the fresh mint, the the Thai or opal basil. Those aromatics are used at the end or even like uh, from its raw form uh, in a spring roll, let's say, because it adds that essence of freshness. Well, lemon zest does that as well. So I'll finish a dish with lemon zest like that roasted broccolini I mentioned a little bit earlier. And when you carry the dish to the table, that lemon zest releases its oils from the heat that's permeating from the dish. And you get that waft of beautiful aroma. And it comes up your nose and down your palate when you go to crunch on that roasted broccolini. There's something really beautiful about the lemon zest that I think is also overlooked. So zest your lemons first before you squeeze them. You can actually refrigerate or even freeze the lemon zest. I like to put it in a paper towel wrapped well. Um, You can dry it out in the oven too, and then you can use it when you need it, let's say. Lemon juice, for that matter, can be juiced in quantity and kept in a mason jar in the fridge. You can also freeze lemon juice, let's say, in very small quantities in an ice cube tray, so you always have it to throw into a dish. And then you should know that lemons have a bevy of health benefits that you might not have thought of. Lemons are very essential in controlling blood pressure, according to statistics. They're also rich in potassium, as if you needed more reasons to use the lovely lemon. Lemons happen to help in clearing out toxins from the body, which is why you'll often find them in a cleanse or um, often drank in, in water during a, a diet. They also help prevent the formation of kidney stones. Lemon juice and lemon zest, all forms of the lemon, in fact, are rich in vitamin C. They can act as an immunity booster. And finally, lemons are said to have anti-aging and anti-inflammatory properties. So why not use them, right? And then, of course, if you have lemons in abundance, you can always make limoncello. And so that, I hope is a waxed poetic technique review 
on the virtue of lemons. You'll find a multitude of recipes at chefjamie.com using the luscious lemon. And I'd love to know how you use it up. You should know I use my rinds once they're zested and squeezed to clean countertops or I'll add a little salt and scrub a tired pan. That works great too. Okay, moving on from the lemon. I have some seriously good news that you can use this week in food news. Have you heard about Crowd Cow? Crowd Cow lets you buy a cow with friends. Seriously. I just learned about a new crowdfunding concept, and I think it's very delicious. It's called Crowd Cow, and their mission is to allow everyone to discover and enjoy the very best beef from local ranches across the country by offering healthy, high-quality, sustainable meat. Crowd Cow lets you buy a cow with your friends. You see, you claim a share, you rally your friends up, you tip the cow, as they call it, and you become a stakeholder. You can buy the exact cuts you want. They will uh, literally direct from the farm, deliver straight to your door. You order online and you do get a very deep knowledge of the source of the food that you're consuming. You can learn about the cow's genetics, how it was raised, how the meat was cut. All that information is provided. Crowd Cow intends to put an end to mystery meat. It is the only brand in the world that provides direct access to local ranches and offers the greatest level of transparency available. I happen to think it's brilliant. You can, by the way, tip a cow and learn more at crowdcow.com. Pretty fabulous, right? And do not touch your dial because we have a full plate coming up. Author, blogger, good Southern gentleman, Matt Moore is stopping by to share the South's best butts. That's right. We are talking barbecue next. Also, later in the hour, we will eat Korea with Graham Holiday. And we'll get a little fitness in with our resident expert, Lisa Lynn, just before the close of this show. So please stay tuned. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Back in a moment. way to get your quick fix of culinary entertainment. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Chopped, pulled, shredded, or sliced, there is nothing like a pork sandwich from the pit. And everyone has an opinion on which one is Boss Hog. In the South's Best Butts, the highly anticipated new cookbook release from food writer and Southern gentleman Matt Moore, you will learn tried and true techniques to coax meltingly tender perfection from the humble pig. And I am delighted that he is here to dish. Hi, Matt. Hey, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me. Well, of course, and congratulations on the book. I have to tell you, it is uh, lip-smackingly good and crave-worthy, because I went page by page, and there wasn't a recipe that I couldn't wait to try and taste. Well, I appreciate that. Yes. I've always uh, wanted to make sure that uh, folks 
not only think the books are beautiful, but hopefully uh, have them tattered and torn and spilled upon as they cook their way through. <laughs> isn't isn't that what makes the best book? Absolutely. Yeah, when you've dripped and, and dribbled on it. Um, you say that Southern barbecue is a religion. Can you elaborate? Because I love that passion. You know, to grow up here, uh, barbecue is such a closely held secret uh, thing of wonder. Um, and there's a lot of opinions, too. You know, I say that opinions are like butts. Everybody has one. Uh, <laughs> so I think it is this kind of other counterculture that is in many ways religious. And it was so fun to go out and uh, showcase all the people and places that are, are carrying on this grand tr- tradition. Can you talk about the history of the pig in American barbecue, please? And feel free to engage your drawl. <laughs> well, I'm not drinking a beer just yet, but just I'll try. Just yet. Just yet. You know... <laughs> The, the pig has played a, a very long, important role uh, throughout American history. Uh, first believed that it was brought over by DeSoto to uh, the Florida area back in the 1400s. And uh, since that time, it's, it's played a large part of the southern diet, predominantly because pigs are so easy to raise. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could be raised for much cheaper cost on less desirable grounds. Uh, and, you know, throughout the South, even the Civil War, it could be cured and, and something that could be carried and portable. Um, so it's, it's played a large role, and I think um, an important thing to think about, uh, a big part of this book, is we wanted to showcase diversity of people and, and food. And, and even back then, uh, in a rare time of, of humanity, even during slave years, um, pig pickings, as they're still called today, were often thrown as, as celebratory feasts where you really broke the bounds of social hierarchy at the time. Um, so it's a, it's a huge... Um, part of our culture, and it's something that I think is the, the really the true cornerstone of, of Southern barbecue. And for those that don't know or haven't maybe understood truly, like I think I'm, I'm always learning, uh-huh. the, the real root of great Southern Q, as you call it, is the marriage of meat, cooking method, and sauce, right? We need to be educated on, on that trio. Yes, I think that, uh, you know, people confuse the term barbecue. I mean, for me, barbecue is uh, something slow-roasted, allowing the fat to drip to the coals uh, so that that smoke can help perfume whatever you're cooking. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll I'll make a a statement that folks will argue, but I think, as I mentioned earlier, the common denominator is pig. I mean, sure, in Texas and Oklahoma, they're known for beef. In Kentucky, you have mutton. Um, But it's important because most regions of barbecue uh, all carry different traditions, whether it's a, a dry rub, whether it's the woods that they're using or the method that they're actually smoking that meat, and then also the method of service. You know, is it pulled or chopped? Uh, is it soft or not soft? Is it served with coleslaw on a bun or is it served on a taco? Mm-hmm. Um, this book is really going to lay out all the different methods and all the different regions and how this one cut is being used. But no matter which pitmaster you speak to, from uh, reading through your book, I understand that everyone, all of those great barbecue masters agree that fuel equals flavor. 100%. Yes. And there's a lot of different ways to get there. And we spend some time in the book to talk about you know, how accessible great barbecue can be at home. Uh, Skip Steele, he is the pitmaster of Bogarts and Pappies in St. Louis, pretty well known on the competition circuit. He says that time and temperature equals results. And I have to agree with him because good barbecue is more the result of uh, managing time and managing temperature. And then from there, you've got all sorts of different types of woods that can add different flavors. Hardwoods, uh, like a hickory or mesquite, can add a stronger flavor where you have 
soft fruit woods, which can add more delicate flavors. Um, I really invite folks to read through these recipes, look at the different techniques that pitmasters offer, and then you know take their own take on perfecting barbecue in the backyard. Can we talk about the butt? I think it's a very misunderstood cut of pig. I really do. And I happen to think that it has great virtue and value. It happens to be an exceptional value. It's a very inexpensive cut. You can totally abuse it. Uh, You know, we we know that it's great, makes great cue, but there are other methods by which to cook it. Um, And it it tends to take on flavor no, no matter what your flavor profile is. Yeah, so let's start with what is the pork butt. Uh, it's not the butt. It's, it's not the, the tushy, right. <laughs> and um, it originally, uh, again, this is all up for debate, got its name because back in the day when they would salt, cure, and preserve these, they used to put them into barrels, and those barrels were called butts. Huh. Um, and so that's the entomology of the name but you are right it is a a humble cut it's affordable it can stretch to feed a crowd and it takes on flavors and it is pretty forgiving um you know being from nashville i always like to say that in the barbecue band uh ribs kind of serve as the lead singer you know everybody likes them but they're quite finicky uh more lately you've had brisket kind of acting like the lead singer or lead guitarist trying to steal some of the spotlight but behind the scenes you've always had the drummer the bass player which is the pork butt um, it's keeping everybody in time, and I wanted to kind of shine my spotlight and use that as a medium to uh, not only uncover all the different types of barbecue, but also uncover the people that are carrying on this tradition of cooking barbecue. And I will say this, uh, you get a lot of pork butt in this book, but at the same time, you know, we can't take you to Texas and not show you one of the best smoked briskets around or well, go up to Kentucky and not have some chip mutton. So mm. there's a lot of diversity in the books, but we do use the pork butt is kind of our medium by which to tell the story. Yes, and a fine medium it is. Thank you. French cuisine has five mother sauces. I love that you apply that uh, that methodology to barbecue. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so just highlight your favorite. I- I'm a, a mustard barbecue sauce kind of girl, or I happen to love anything on the sweeter side. Well, this was a fun chapter to write. Yeah, uh, Michael right. McCord, who I featured in the book, is actually a, a childhood friend of mine. So he uh, has a very successful business out of Atlanta, Georgia, where he's producing uh, fantastic sauces. So, um, you know, for me, sauce is one of those components that uh, sometimes you need it and sometimes you don't. And uh, depending on the mood that I'm in, sometimes I really just like to taste the meat and the smoke and the flavor. But sauces can be used to enhance meats. I tend to gravitate a little bit more towards a Carolina style mm-hmm. where it is truly just vinegar, salt, and crushed red pepper, no tomato. Um, but that's the fun part of a sauce is you can really cater it towards your needs. And I wanted to lay out uh, from a great expert uh, five of the most basic sauces from you know, Carolina style to a sweeter sauce to a white sauce to a mustard sauce to give folks a really good uh, starting point. Mm-hmm. And then as you get throughout the book, you're getting a lot of the sauces that I had to literally pry <laughs> from the pitmaster's hands uh, as a way to showcase kind of all the unique variations that we came across in our travels. Congratulations to you. It is hey, another truly stellar book, and it is so steeped in passion and love and expertise that you can feel it on the pages. It is more than a book of recipes. Matt Moore shares the closely guarded, passed-down secrets of the best Southern barbecue in his new cookbook release entitled The South's Best Butts. 
One thing is for certain, this book will change the way that you smoke and grill and eat, so you must check it out. You can find the book releasing soon, available everywhere, and you can learn more about Matt's Q Travels at Matt R. Moore, M-A-T-T-R-M-O-O-R-E dot com. Matt, you are welcome back with Pulled Pork anytime on this show. I'll come with a full plate. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your passion. As sure the thing. delicious conversation continues, we do talk about the best eats across the country and beyond. Stay tuned. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. You have tuned in to the best culinary conversation. Journalist, world traveler, and avid eater Graham Holiday has sampled some of the most exotic and intriguing cuisines around the globe. However, none seems to have intrigued him more or stayed with him longer than the culture and cuisine of Korea. In Eating Korea, reports on a culinary renaissance, Graham takes us on a vibrant tour of gastronomic Korea to unearth the real food eaten by locals, highlighting the beauty of its culinary roots. It is a wonderful read for any food lover. Graham Holiday grew up in rugby, England. He moved to South Korea in 1996 to teach English, and he has globe-trotted to eat since then. He has written for the New York Times, the BBC, and CNN. He is also the blogger behind NoodlePie.com, and his prose will take you on a culinary journey that will no doubt satiate your appetite. Graham Holiday, the author of the just-released Eating Korea, has stopped by to dish, and I'm so glad. Hi, Graham. Hi, Jamie. I'm very glad to have you. Your book made me hungry. What a wonderful read. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Yes, definitely so. Would you highlight for us maybe your fondest memory or when you think of eating Korea, what comes to mind? What conjures up? Oh, that's really difficult because it really depends on who you're with, the time of day, uh, the season <laughs> you're visiting in. So, for example, if we were visiting now in, in Korea, it's still, it's still a little bit cold. It's, it's starting to get warmer. It's springtime. But I'd probably start to think about <clears throat> some of the, the dishes you can get um, in the countryside, uh, tofu dishes, uh, some of the soups, uh, because some of the herbs and roots are starting to appear in the countryside. And that's when they start to add interesting, different things um, to the food that you don't see all year round. So it really depends on the time of year and obviously who you're with. Um, if, if you're uh, out for work or if you're out for fun with friends, um, because yeah, Koreans like to have a lot of fun when they go out to eat. Yes, and I, I found that very endearing in reading about your um, social experiences in Korea, very much centered around food. I also sensed a fear that traditional Korean food is disappearing. And you speak a lot to that in the book. Can you give us some insight? Yeah, I mean, I lived in Korea in 1996. Um, so I noticed a big difference when I went back because a lot of the places I used to go to um, had, had simply disappeared. A lot of the traditional dishes I knew 
back then were, were still around, but they're much harder to find. And if you talk to the younger generation and teenagers and early 20s, um, they're often <clears throat> more interested in eating uh, Western food than Korean food. And uh, I was surprised to go out for dinner with quite a number of people who, uh, especially younger women, 20-something women who, who, didn't, um, who said they didn't like kimchi anymore. So this was a, quite a bizarre thing to... To, when you've lived in Korea before, as I did 20 years ago, to hear a Korean who doesn't like kimchi was quite a shock. So I, I delved into that a bit and uh, reported about that in the book. Yes, definitely so. And I think it's fascinating, the dichotomy, because in the States, we're crazy for kimchi. You know, there there is a, a, a kimchi movement going on. And I thought the, the, the contrast of new cooks taking pride in, in reclaiming old recipes, the balance of new and old tradition on your ventures back is what really fascinated me. No, it's absolutely amazing because, um, I mean, years ago when I was there, it, not many foreigners really enjoyed being in Korea or particularly enjoyed the food. I was probably one of the exceptions. However, now if you go there, and there's lots and lots of foreigners who are going there specifically to eat the food because there's they've sampled it in Los Angeles or wherever else and really enjoyed it. And they're going back, and actually at the same time, you've got a lot of Koreans who are moving in their direction. So it's, it's, it's a quite a bizarre, bizarre kind of uh, mix of, of the two cultures clashing in a way I'd never have expected before. Definitely. So what are they going to eat? Can you highlight some of the most popular dishes today? Because I'd love to see how that mirrors our current culinary culture um, here in America? Well, I think, you know, a lot of uh, foreigners who travel to Korea, they're, they're looking for a lot of the things maybe they've tried back home, which might be something like bibimbap or uh, galbi, uh, a grilled uh, pork dish, or maybe bulgogi, something like that. Perhaps some of the soups, uh, tofu soup, uh, sundubu. Um, there's many, many different dishes. But um, from my own experience, I haven't eaten Korean food in America. However, I've eaten it in many other countries. And it's simply not quite the same uh, as when you're actually in Korea. Maybe the food is very similar, um, but with the atmosphere and the restaurants and the noises, the smells, it's, it's, it, it, you have to be in Korea to really experience it, I think. Definitely. And you do take us there in the book because I felt like I was at the markets and the, the food stalls. The actual street food in Korea, is it... Uh, of the most authentic style, or has it too been elevated? Uh, street food, there's less and less of it, because uh, there used to be these orange tents they called, uh, they call uh, pojong matcha. Um, they used to crop up at night um, as the sun goes down, all over Korea, in all the cities and by the coast. And these have effectively been banned now. So where, whereas this was a really lively place to go and eat, anything from live octopus to a soup or mm. um, uh, simple rice stick dishes or um, fish sticks as well they have there. <laughs> They've simply gone. The whole scene has gone, um, which really shocked me because that was one of the things I enjoyed the most 20 years ago was eating in these orange tents at night. Um, but they're not there anymore. So the street food scene is, is quite a bit different from, from, uh, from my previous experience. But the restaurant culture is on the rise. He is Graham Holiday, and we are eating Korea. More kimchi after the break.
Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as we continue the culinary conversation with Graham Holiday, author of Eating Korea. I found it so interesting to read about your observations on the very quickly changing society. There is uh, an assertiveness uh, of women that is very evident you speak about. Uh, Definitely um, an appreciation for, for the national, but... Uh, they are growing, yes? I mean, as far as becoming a more progressive nation, I suppose, if you would compare it to the rest of the world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's night and day from, from, again, from 20 years ago, mm. where, you know, I was a 20, 26-year-old white guy walking mm. down a street in a small town in Korea, and, you know, people would, would point at you, shout at you, run away from you. It was, it was quite a... a an off-putting experience, whereas now people don't look at you at all, they're not bothered about you, so it's really changed. The whole, the younger culture, I think it's really changed from 2002 when they hosted the World Cup with Japan, the football world, soccer World Cup. Um, I think it really started to change now, so it's much more international, and if you talk to 20-somethings there, they're very open-minded, uh, they've travelled, a lot of them have been educated abroad, um, so it's it's a completely different mindset now, whereas the people I knew before, people I worked with, were kind of a post-war generation, really. Mm-hmm. Interesting. If we were to uh, plan a trip to Korea, where would you suggest we start off our culinary tour? Well, the obvious places where you fly into, probably, which will be Seoul. Um, pretty much everything's on offer in Seoul, but it's a very, very big city and can be quite quite daunting to, uh, to get around, <laughs> in a way. Um, the place I would probably go... Um, there's two places I really, really like. One is in the southeast called Busan, which is a port city. A lot of different seafood there, some interesting um, markets to, to visit. Um, lots of uh, regional dishes that come from Busan uh, specifically. Then the other place would be Jeonju, which is in the southwest of Korea in Jolabukdo province. And that is where all Koreans go to try the best food in Korea. They mm. think it's the... Uh, it's where all the best food it comes from is in Jeonju, so that's where I'd recommend. The culinary capital. I'd love to meet you there one day. <laughs> let's do it. Okay, let's do it. We shall eat together. But in the interim, you can get a taste of eating Korea, the sights, the smells, the flavors, in appetizing detail from Graham Holiday's travel memoir just released. It is called Eating Korea, Reports on a Culinary Renaissance. And you can learn more at noodlepie.com, where you too can follow Graham's culinary excursions and find out his greatest gastronomic pleasures. Congratulations to you, Graham. The book is a beautiful read, and I'm grateful that you stopped by to share your passion. My pleasure, Jamie. Thank Thank you very much. Yes. As the delicious conversation continues, there is more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Don't go away. Cheers to your health. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. 
We're talking about health and wellness today and juicing, which might seem like a simple way to lose weight, but it can backfire. Lots of us are juicing for health. It can be a great way to get more vegetable nutrition, but it could be doing a number on your blood sugar. As anyone who has ever made fresh juice knows, it takes three pounds of produce to produce 16 ounces of juice. And that's part of what makes juicing seem like such a healthy habit, right? We all know that fruits and vegetables are good for us, but fitness expert Lisa Lin says, think again. She is the celebrity fitness and metabolic nutrition expert, the founder of Lin Fit Nutrition and the author of the award-winning The Metabolism Solution. Lisa regularly appears with Dr. Oz to share her workouts, her insight, and her belly fat weight loss tips. And I'm proud to call her our resident fitness expert on this show. I'm always thrilled when she stops by to whip us back into shape. Lisa Lin is here. I can hear that stationary bike whizzing in the back, Lise. Yes, I'm trying to melt off that belly fat. Yeah, I know you are. (laughs) The smartest girl I know with a stationary bike as the chair at her desk. Okay, to juice or not to juice, that is the question. Not is the answer. Okay, good. I totally get the desperation. Um, I've been there where you want to juice and you want to cleanse. And, 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 and in some regards, it's right because it, it, we want to kind of take where we are, and it's the tipping point to get us where we want to be. However, juicing is not the solution. Shut the TV off of the infomercials and stop listening because <laughs> 50 grams of sugar per one of those juices, even if they're green, and the reason I realized how bad this juicing epidemic was getting is I had a couple clients end up in the hospital, mm-hmm. um, not following my program, just for the record, just decided to juice while they were away in Florida at a spa, um, electrolyte imbalance. Sometimes they just washed right through their body. Sometimes they take the medications you might need to be on and make them null and void. And I had a lady blow up her thyroid because she was juicing kale, which people don't realize is a goitrogen, meaning it it inhibits thyroid production, and so it can actually create hypothyroidism, and no one could figure out why. She was flown around the country, checked in, you know, Yale New Haven ran all these specials for some type of immune disease. Bottom line, too much juicing. Okay, so there there must be a balance, because you believe in balance. I mean, you're my friend that carries Tootsie Rolls in your pocket. That's why I love you while you're it's stationary. Right, well, of course, while you're stationary bike whizzing. And by the way, can, can you work out for me too, please? Absolutely. But, like you need it. Well, I do. But you know, the balance is so we all know that if we have a piece of candy, we're going to get some sugar. And quite frankly, that's where sugar should come from. The treats and the indulgences in our world, they shouldn't come from the things we think are healthy. For instance, if you're a wine drinker, you definitely don't want to touch juicing because they kind of are going to flip the same blood sugar switch. Diabetes is on the rise, and there's a good reason because we're doing all these crazy things. But I get the fasting part of it where you have to stop focusing on food, so I love this aspect, and just have, uh, let's say, a metabolic boosting cleansing smoothie versus a juice What's the difference? You got to add protein shake. Protein puts a lid and buffers the blood sugar reaction, so it helps keep it in balance and also nourishes your body, meaning your body needs protein is probably the number one nutrient that it needs for hair, skin, nails, brain, mood, serotonin regulation. Mm. Juicing doesn't do any of that. 
And as I've read in your newsletter, that protein is actually a conduit to absorb the minerals and the benefits from the vitamins we're taking, what we're getting from our food, what we're uh, gaining from fruits and vegetables as well. What I was most surprised to read in your newsletter, though, is that this juicing, uh, if you want to call it an epidemic, what is being very much used as a reboot is a tremendous issue, rather, for diabetics and pre-diabetics. I have to tell you, I've been in this business a long time, and and while I kind of knew this, when I read this year's, you know, stuff that was going on, it really struck me. Not only that, gout and arthritis, it's flipping the switch and creating a perfect environment to set off our pain switches, yet... To be honest with you, some gurus will tell you juice when, you know, they want you to get rid of the animal meat in a, in a short speech. But the truth is, when you put that much sugar into your body and it starts to hit your liver, it sets up a ripe condition for pain, inflammation, gout. And so the solution is, have a protein smoothie in the morning. Put your, you know, you know I'm a big proponent of whey because it's best for weight loss. Not soy, but whey, and also taking an omega three with it. And then at lunchtime, when you have another shake, drink your shake, eat, chew two vegetables. That way, when you chew it, it sets off, it elicits an enzymatic response, which is what we want. Our body, including chewing in saliva, works with our digestion down in our belly. If you don't have to digest food and you just drink it like a juice, you can only imagine what it does to the system. Before summer, Lise, will you come back, please, so that we can get ready for that itty-bitty bikini? Oh, yeah. You know the next level is fast fat loss. So anytime. My pleasure. I look forward to it. Keep uh, biking away, would you please? (laughs) Thanks so much. Have a good day. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of stimulating culinary conversation. I hope that I made you hungry and that you will tune in every Sunday for more gastronomic pleasures. You'll find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit for this Sunday. Something magical happens when you combine espresso, sweetened condensed milk, and heavy cream. It's like a fluffy version of the best coffee ice cream that you've ever had. Yes, It is a three-ingredient coffee mousse. All you do is simply combine one tablespoon of instant espresso powder, which you should always have on hand, with a standard 14-ounce size can of sweetened condensed milk in a small pot over medium heat just until it's warm. It takes a few minutes. Then you'll refrigerate it until cool, about 30 minutes. Add two cups or a pint of heavy whipping cream and beat it with your electric mixer until it has these lovely soft peaks. Then you can spoon it into small mason jars or empty yogurt jars, maybe just custard cups and serve this decadent coffee mousse that is out of this world with fabulous flavor. I will post the recipe for my three-ingredient coffee mousse once again on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I'll meet you here next Sunday for more fabulous food right here in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. <music>